Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. A a report from the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General, the DHSOIG, just was released. NBC News grabbed a copy of it, and it's being reported on by Gabe Ortiz over at Daily Kos. He's all over this topic and has been for years, and he's absolutely brilliant in his reporting. And he points out that, well, here's how Gabe puts it in his own words. It's brilliant. He says, the final report confirms that Jeff Sessions, who was the head of the, you know, who Trump put in charge of DHS, in particular, as an evil, grinning participant in carrying out this human and children's rights atrocity. We're talking about separating children from their families at the southern border when they're coming to this country seeking asylum from violence in places like Guatemala. When the U.S. attorneys expressed concern, Gabe writes, about the ages of children being taken from parents and that some parents were not being immediately reunited with their kids, After being prosecuted and receiving time-served sentences, Sessions instead encouraged continued separations. We need to take away the children. This is from the notes from the meetings where Jeff Sessions was there. These are supposed to be quotes from Jeff Sessions, according to the Office of the Inspector General. Quote, Jeff Sessions, we need to take away the children. If they care about the kids, they shouldn't bring them in. We won't give amnesty to people with kids. He also points out that Kristen Nielsen who was in charge of ICE and all this stuff, was gung-ho for this. This is just mind-boggling. I I hope that the House Oversight Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, and the Senate parallels to that do some serious examination of this because the damage that has been done to the lives of these children will not be something that can be easily repaired. Being ripped away from your parents for years at a time, being told that you'll never see your parents again, there is no more severe trauma that any uh, human being outside of, you know, being physically, you know, slashed up or something or nearly dying. There's, there's pretty much no other trauma that is as severe as that. And, you know, we just have to acknowledge the absolute horror, you know, a, a horror worthy of, you know, just some really terrible countries around the world in, in the past that was perpetrated on these people by Stephen Miller and Donald Trump with, you know, Ivanka saying, yeah, it's cool. And Jared going, yeah, I'll help out. And Melania wearing a jacket that said, I really don't care. That these people did to Hispanic people because of their race, largely. They were not separating the children of the people who are here illegally from Europe. And there's a lot of them. They were separating the children of people coming here from south of the border. And, you know, I, it, we just cannot forget that. Paul in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Paul, what's on your mind? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you asked me to call in and let you know how I'm the guy that has acupuncturists that can cure Republicanitis. And I okay. ran for, for state representative. And uh, you allowed mm-hmm. me to, answer, to mention on the air. And I got some donations from around the country. I have no idea who these people are. They sent me like $5. That's great. And uh, yeah, it was it, so. I really appreciate that, and I actually sent thank you notes to all sixty-one places that donated. But you want to know how it went? So not unexpectedly. Well, it was disappointing, but not unexpected. I got thirty-seven percent, 
he got 63%, so pretty much two-thirds, one-third. But uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting, the statistics from the area. My particular county is Valencia County, and it's about a half hour south of Albuquerque. And it's rural with a couple big towns, and it's very conservative. And there's 18,000 people registered in my district, and I got 5,000, approximately. I got 5,000 votes. He got almost 9,000 votes. So that was roughly the break. What's interesting is if you go look at the registrations, there's about 7,700 Democrats registered, 7,700 Republicans registered. So it's about the same. But there's four, hmm. a little over 4,000 people that have registered in it for neither major party. So that was hmm. going to be the deciding factor. What's also interesting is between January and November election, the Democrats registered about 200 people. The Republicans registered 700 people in that same time, and the neither was about 150 people. So you need to be taking a lesson, Paul. If you're going to run again, you need to be taking a lesson from Stacey Abrams and get people registered and get people organized and get people... Yeah, that's that's the problem, especially with COVID, because the party here made it decision not to go door to door because of COVID. So that was an additional right. problem. Which is understandable. Yeah. yeah. So are you going to run again? It is. Well, I don't want to run unopposed. I ran this time because they couldn't find anybody to run against them. So I said, ah, what the hell? I'll do it. No big deal. Mm-hmm. And I spent about $5,000. She spent $28,000. She actually hired a full-time campaign manager for $5,000. This is how much I spent in the whole campaign. <laughs> He got a $5,000 one lump donation from a big out-of-state oil company, too, which is kind of interesting. And out of my $5,000, about $3,000 was just to do one postcard mailing was $3,000, and the rest was text messaging and stuff like that. So I'm thinking in two years, maybe, yeah, I'll probably do it again. If they can't find anybody else, I'm not going to run against another person that really wants to go after them. But if they can't find anybody, sure. I'll do it again. but Yeah, yeah. I mean, your yeah, first race is where you learn your lessons. I think Lincoln lost his first two or three elections before he finally figured out, you know, how to get into the well, uh, Illinois well, legislature I, and then the White House. I don't know that this d- county is really winnable, so I'm thinking of doing absolutely nothing, and I'd probably come up with the same thing. Because the Sunday before the election, on, t- on the Tuesday, the mm-hmm. Democrats decided to get together and do a little a parade, you know, driving through the two big cities with, you know, mm-hmm. stuff taped to the cars and stuff like that. and So we put it out on Facebook, right. and all of a sudden there was some chatter on the right-wing sites. And so when we all showed up with about four, 40 cars, just a couple of right-wingers showed up, started driving through the parking lot just, you know, to harass us. So we called the cops. As soon as they showed up, they took off. So we had our little mm-hmm. parade with about 50 cars. And then on my way home, I was driving fairly good-sized distance, and went past in the opposite direction from the Trump parade they decided to do, maybe because we did, I don't know. I counted 217 cars in their parade versus 40 yeah. in ours. Well, Facebook so, has been a great organizing tool for them. and well, you know, For everybody, really. So yeah. I think Trump was a big factor here. I had figured people were sick of Trump, and one of the things I made on my campaign was about Trump. And... He's popular. He won by 10% in my county. Wow, in your county. Paul, thank you. Thanks for the insight into a campaign. And, you know, when you run again, let us know, and I'll plug you again. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com. There's a really troubling concatenation of events that are happening in the United States right now. We created these concentration camps for refugees seeking asylum. This was Stephen Miller's big project. And we've got concentration camps for children, concentration camps for male adults, concentration camps for female adults. And now we've got this virus sweeping through the United States and people are starting to die in these concentration camps which has provoked ICE to, uh, or whoever's running them, to deport hundreds of the children back to the countries that they came from without their parents, which is mind-boggling, and in many cases carrying disease. 
This is serious stuff, and we need to be talking about it. The video is over at TomHartman.com. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, picking up your calls, uh, pretty much in the order that people called in. Uh, Mary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind? Yes, hi. Um, I asked a Trump supporter the other day two things. Does he think the election is stolen, and did Mike Pence, was there something Mike Pence could have done about it? He said there were dueling electors, dueling electors in six, six swing states, and Mike Pence could have taking that into account and done something to swing the election in Trump's favor. What's your comment on that? Yeah, there were not dueling electors. Uh, that happened in, in 1876 in that election. You had four states that sent two slates of electors to the, uh, to the, to the federal government um, because you had four states that were basically split in their control. Um, you know, you had the Union Army occupying Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, I think were the states in the South. And then you had the Klan that was occupying Oregon at the time. And so there was actually two slates of electors that had been certified by the states. And Congress had to figure out which one to choose. In this case, all of the electors that were certified by the states actually showed Joe Biden won by 306 electoral votes. Trump was trying to say, and Trump's uh, apologists were trying to say, that because they didn't, they were suggesting that there was, quote, voter fraud, which is the big Republican, the Republican big lie has been for the last 40 years. They were trying to say that because they thought there was voter fraud in some of these swing states or because the swing states changed, as pretty much all states did in this election, changed their, uh, their uh, rules for the election, giving people more time to vote early or more time to mail in their ballots, things like that, because of the pandemic that that somehow affected the outcome of the election and those states were in in question and their their uh, certified votes should not be counted it was a bs argument then it's a bs argument now there were no dueling slates of electors and uh, joe biden won 306 electoral votes fair and square there was no stolen election and republicans like mitt romney said need to start saying that out loud so far as far as i can tell the only republican elected federally elected official who has been willing to say that is mitt romney all right yeah i okay. Just, okay. there's so many stories so many stories yeah no it's i mean this is part of the big lie it's being promoted by fox news it's being promoted by oan and, and all the and right-wing hate radios all over it and it's a lie just pure and simple mary thank you for the call Patrick in Seaside, California. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. What's up? Well, um, I had a question, but first of all, um, I want about something you read several months ago. But first of all, you know, I haven't had cable for a while. Uh, did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, Methuselah. <laughs> or not I Methuselah. Still maintain uh, my 4250 every month. I still maintain my 4250 every month for Free Speech TV. I basically didn't oh, pay my cable bill because my girlfriend had some procedures she needs to have done because her blood work came back, her annual uh, physical came back with some uh, disturbing anomalies, and she wasn't able. She had to postpone her visits because of deductibles, and I didn't have the money to help pay her deductibles. So the only thing I could think of was yeah. to get her loaded up with some. Uh, this is why we need uh, Medicare for all, Patrick. I mean, this is this yeah. is this is uh, crazy. Yeah, absolutely. But anyhow, what's what's your what's so your topic? What are you calling the only about? Thing, the only reason. Well, I wanted to ask you about uh, something you read several months ago, but I was going to say that the reason I didn't pay my cable bill was the only thing I could think of was to get her loaded up with cannabinoids and some cannabis products to just you know, preemptively try and take care of this. My question was, um, several, months ago, several months ago, you read, I think it was an email, and I, I think it was widely circulated, by a woman who said that uh, she lived among these people, these people meaning um, you know, white, uh, poor conservatives and middle-class conservatives, who um, are getting screwed by the Republicans, but they don't care. The only reason they vote for Republicans and they vote for Trump was out of hatred of liberals and trying to screw over liberals. And it was a pretty famous right. email. And I've been searching for it for months, and I can't find it. And I was wondering if you remembered it or, or what, what it was, um, where, where, where I could uh, I do remember it. I don't have a copy handy. I don't know what happened. Usually, uh, nine times out of ten, after I'm after I use stories like that, you know, we, we trash them or, or stick them in a box someplace. But I can tell you where I found it. I found it over at DemocraticUnderground.com. 
So uh, what I would suggest you do, it costs absolutely nothing to, to join democraticunderground.com, uh, just you know, to create an account. You can post a question mark, you can post a question on their message board and just say, you know, Tom read this thing on the air a few months ago. He said he got it from the DU. Uh, does anybody remember what it is? Can you point me to it? There's also a search engine on their website that, uh, you know, that might allow you to find it. And, and as I recall, it had links to other places where, the, where it had been published. Um, but it, 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 that's where I found it, Patrick. Does that help? Yeah. One thing I wanted to say, and I wanted to see what you thought about this. I mean, the Biden-Harris administration has to address a lot of issues. And, and, in, and in, in addition to helping all the other communities, um, including communities of color, I think what we really should consider doing is addressing, you know, the Appalachian whites and, and the poor white people in different parts of the country who voted for Trump and vote Republicans consistently. Yeah. Um, like, well, that's what Biden is talking about doing. Train, train people uh, who are uh, miners in West Virginia how to manufacture um, solar panels. Get them good jobs. Yeah. I think this is a good way to address the people and their grievances. I, I'm with you. And, and if, the, if the Republicans, like uh, I think Jim Justice is his name, the governor of West Virginia, if they really cared about their people, they would be doing that rather than promoting the, you know, this, uh, this Republican nonsense. You're listening nonsense. to the Tom Hartman Program. Thanks for the call, Patrick. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club, and today we're reading from ADD Success Stories, a guide for fulfillment to fulfillment for families with attention deficit disorder, and it's really individuals as well. And mostly the book is well over 100 individual stories about ways that people have learned how to be successful in life and uh, just sharing them with others. A lot of these came from when I ran the ADD forum on CompuServe, and a lot of these are you know, other people's stories from CompuServe, some of them from when Louise was coaching, when we were running the community for ADHD kids, all kinds of stuff. So this is from Chapter 5, page 47, titled Learning How to Handle Criticism and Self-Criticism. And it opens with a quote from Benjamin Disraeli in 1860. He said, it's much easier to be critical than to be correct. One of the most common and recurring strategies of successful hunters, that's people with ADD, tell about is how they've learned to handle criticism. A successful ADD entrepreneur tells the story of how devastated he was in a high school presentation that he'd spent the better part of two months on for English class. He read dozens of books, dug out arcane facts, sifted through quotes and stories and information, all to find what he thought was the absolutely perfect summary to make his point. With great enthusiasm, he pulled an all-nighter, writing the final paper, and marched off to school the next day with his head high and the smell of academic victory in his nostrils. At 2 o'clock, he walked into his English classroom and marched up to the teacher's desk, a paper in his hand. 
Here it is, he said, and handed it to her with a dramatic flourish. She took one glance at it, leaned over the side of the desk, and dropped it into the wastebasket. You didn't double spaces, she said. When are you going to learn to read the directions? Stunned, he began to protest to tell her about the hours of work he'd done. She shook her head as if shaking his words out of her ears and interrupted him, saying, you have to learn how to do things right. This will be a good lesson for you. I'm giving you an F for that paper, and there's no appeal because today was the last day you could hand it in. He went home that night and at the ripe old age of 14 cried himself to sleep. I learned two important lessons from that experience, he told me 20 years later. The first was that I needed to slow down to force myself to read directions. In that regard, it was probably a positive experience. But it also almost destroyed my commitment to her, to the class, to the school, and to any future academic achievement. And that was where I learned my second and most important lesson. When you fall down, stand back up, dust yourself off, and carry on. That sounds easy, I said, but how do you do it? How do you go from being angry about her, from blaming her, or for that matter, from blaming yourself? I have a picture in my mind, he said, of a man who's walking down a dusty rural road. He trips on a stone and falls face first into the dirt. Then he reaches over to the side of the road, grabs a stick, and begins to beat himself over the head with a stick, yelling at himself about how stupid he was to trip and fall. Between these comments, he's cursing the stone for being there and blaming it for tripping him. That's absurd, isn't it? But that's just what many people do. And when I imagine that picture and I see how absurd it is to wallow in self-blame, I feel empowered to get on with my life. End of quote. Unfortunately, the absurd behavior that this entrepreneur described is just what so many people do, particularly those who've spent their lives feeling like they've never quite lived up to their potential. They respond to criticism first by blaming the critic and then by beating themselves up. They rationalize the former by taking a debating position, finding flaws in the criticism or the critic, and then rationalize the latter by telling themselves that if they beat themselves up emotionally, they'll learn from the experience. In real life, it rarely works that way. People who pursue this strategy instead just end up bruised and ineffectual, paralyzed by fear of criticism or by the damage they do to themselves in the name of lesson learning. So how can we best handle criticism? And then we go through some more stories. The first step is to examine the criticism to see if there's any truth in it. Usually there is some truth to criticism, and if we can separate out the kernel of truth from the emotional baggage associated with it, we could often learn something useful. For example, when my first book on ADD was published, one reviewer wrote a scathing and sarcastic commentary on it. While much of the commentary was off-base or factually inaccurate, he did point out one real deficiency. My premise of Hunters and Farmers was based on anthropology, but I hadn't gotten the endorsement of any anthropologists or cited any anthropological texts in my bibliography. So, deciding that he had a point, I sought out people with the requisite knowledge of hunting and farming culture. I first found Will Crinan, M.D., who, while not an anthropologist, was one of the few medical doctors in the world to have spent years of his career as the physician to an indigenous hunting society, one of the last of the Native American tribes in Canada. Each year, every year, he followed them with his small plane as they made their annual 1,000-mile trek with the caribou they hunted. He told me that when he first arrived, he found that the previous doctor had diagnosed 100% of their children with ADD and put the entire school on Ritalin. That, for me, was a pretty good validation of the hunter-farmer theory. Then I met cultural anthropologist Jay Fikes, Ph.D., who wrote the famous books debunking Carlos Castaneda. Dr. Fikes obtains his Ph.D. by studying the few remaining Native American hunting societies of the American Southwest and northern Mexico. After reading my book, he wrote a ringing endorsement of it, saying that his experience taught him that hunting and agricultural societies were profoundly different and that the individuals who make them up are profoundly different. There's a startlingly high percentage of what we would call ADD among some of the members of Native hunting tribes. So that criticism of my book, as sarcastic and stinging as it was, made the book better. Anyhow, the book is ADD Success Stories, A Guide to Fulfillment for Families with Attention Deficit Disorder. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Basically, I, when I turned to get a, a summary of what's going on, on across the country, they both MSNBC and CNN broke away for co- press conferences on the uh, security measures that they're going to take in ma- major cities in Washington. And I flipped over to Fox News, and what they were talking about is how Trump is Trump was the victim of what happened, the, supporting those white nationalists that took over. They're the victims. And then they were complaining about the uh, the abuses of the Obama administration. Now, 
think about how ridiculous that is. The biggest terrorist organization on the planet right now is Fox News. The stuff they, every time they open their mouth, they're jeopardizing lives is what they're doing. It's scary stuff, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't call them a terrorist organization, but I do agree that they have spread so much misinformation and so many lies, and they have backed up so many of Donald Trump's lies that they bear a lot of responsibility for what's going on. And, uh, you know, and. Yeah, well, Rupert Murdoch, you know, look at the control that man has over the media, not just in the U.S., but over, you know, much of the world. And that. that Australia and the U.S. That comment you made about Sessions, I'll guarantee you, if you made that comment about to a, a hard-nosed Republican uh, Trump supporter, they'd say, well, all he did was prevent a bunch of future Mexican rapists. That's what they would say. That's the mentality yeah. that's going on in this country. You know? That's how racists talk, Tim. Yeah, I got it. Absolutely. And there's a big, you know? there's a big chunk of, of racism. I mean, I, in fact, racism is the, is the slow boil underneath this whole thing, underneath the Trump presidency, underneath the Republican Party, underneath the, uh, you know, uh, hey, we just elected the first black senator from Georgia, and, and that black senator from Georgia just gave control of the Senate to the Democrats. Oh my God! You know, let's blow the blow the thing up. Let's let's take yeah, down the government. You know, it's funny you should say that, Tom, because the day before, you know, the, the, on the fifth, when they were both uh, when Asa, when they were both uh, uh, won the the runoff, I'll guarantee you by late afternoon when they knew they were going to win, somebody called the uh, Trump administration in a Republican hierarchy and told them to do whatever they needed to do the next day because they were going to get those two into office. You know. Those are the conversations that are going on behind closed doors, because this whole thing with uh, the amount of money that these uh, Republican lunatics put into the system, you think they're going to do the kumbaya bipartisanship. They're going to make it they're going to try to make his life as miserable for Biden and Harris as they can the next two years, because what they want to do is take over the Senate and the House back in, in 2022. That's their prime prerequisite right now. Of course, it's exactly what they did in, uh, you know, when, when uh, Barack Obama became president. And the big right. challenge I think that Joe Biden has right now is that Barack Obama was charismatic. He was a brilliant speaker. He was articulate. Right. He communicated well. He was able to share a message in a way people got. And Joe Biden isn't. I mean, you know, he's he, I think he's going to be a great president and he's a he's a good Democrat. But, you know, he's a stutterer. He has a hard time speaking. And when he does speak, he tends to yell because I think that or at least it sounds like he's yelling. And I'm guessing that that's a way that he's kind of pushing back past his stuttering. God bless him. I'm all in with Joe Biden. But he's got to work probably 20 or 30 percent harder than somebody who has a natural gift for public speaking like Barack Obama. So it's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a tough one. Tim, I got to run. Thanks for the call. Mick in Seattle. Hey, Mick, what's up? Hey, how are you doing, Tom? I'm glad that you're still vertical. Um, Yeah, me too. I'm calling... I'm going to give you big accolades for mentioning the children and the PTSD that they're suffering from being detained. There isn't a more important issue facing the Biden administration than global warming. Uh, The other fact is that uh, them and regular children are suffering PTSD from the virus and the phobia. So the reason I called, though, is because I think we have a poster person who is perfect for the current situation, and I want to hear what you think. That would be Howard Hughes. Is he crazy today? <laughs> well, he's dead. I don't understand I know your, that. your, your That's true. point or your question. Yeah, the point of it is, is he was, it's all about timing. When he was alive, he was crazy. Now that he's passed, would he be viewed the same way? Oh, yeah. I don't really know, Mick. I mean, you know, he had uh, obsessive compulsive disorder fairly severely. I've made the argument for years, in fact, it's a good chunk of one of the books that I wrote, that high-functioning people with obsessive-compulsive disorder who, for whom the object of their obsession that triggers their compulsion is money end up as multimillionaires or billionaires, and they don't care who they have to squash to get there. And I think that's Howard Hughes, you know. And then in his later years, of course, he just degenerated to the point where his, he, was, he was afraid to cut his fingernails or his toenails or his hair or anything else, and he just got weirder and weirder and weirder. But wasn't it Leo DiCaprio who played him in a movie? Am I remembering that right? I'm, I'm yeah. not sure on that. I do think, yeah. though, that he would be a good person to portray him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he did. I could be wrong, but but yeah, I'm with you, Mick. Thank you for the yeah. Sean says in my ear, yes, uh, Leo Leo DiCaprio did. Thanks a lot for the call, Mick. Uh, Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Hey, thanks for uh, taking my call. 
You know, I just wanted to share my thoughts on the siege that took place on the Capitol building and the unfortunate legacy that I think it's going to leave is just how weak of a country we looked in that moment and just how, like, pathetic the whole siege looked. And the fact that credible news sources are saying that some Republicans, like, may have even provided reconnaissance for some of those rioters that ended up storming the Capitol. I mean, it's it's just it's just unconscionable to think I mean, and how we looked in, in like to other countries. Like I have friends that I chat with, you know, in, in Latin America and other places, and, and they just can't believe that the U.S., you know, we, like people put a lot of hope in our country and, and a lot of hope in our mm-hmm. democracy. And just to see it just so taken advantage of and just ripped apart so egregiously you know it'll be a stain that i think we're not going to be able to live down for quite some time anyway your thoughts right i agree i think it shocked the world it certainly shocked a lot of americans and as more and more of the story comes out it gets more and more shocking but the part that's not being amplified and i think should be is that the trump administration refused to allow the national guard to come The Trump administration refused to allow Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, D.C., to send D.C. police in in the way that she wanted to. The FBI had notified the Trump administration that violent protests were going to happen at the Capitol building. They ignored that notification. I think that Donald Trump denied protection to the Capitol building specifically because he wanted his violent mob to break into that building, kill Mike Pence, kill Nancy Pelosi, throw the uh, the electoral count to the House of Representatives, where his Republican buddies, and if you don't think this is possible, just look at the fact that, you know, over and over and over again during that, that hearing, the 25th Amendment hearing on Tuesday, I think it was, various Democrats on that committee kept begging Jim Jordan, the minority leader of that committee, kept begging Jim Jordan to simply say the election was not stolen. And he refused to let those words come out of his mouth. The only Republican who has said that so far is Mitt Romney. They've got to hang on to their, you know, their so-called voter fraud myth or they lose everything. I mean, you know, the whole Republican thing for the last 40 years revealed as a fraud. So I think that Trump was in on it. And I think that this was an actual plot to kill members, elected members of the United States government, and install Donald Trump as the first American dictator. He would have been our Augustus Caesar, you know, the guy who signals the end of the republic. And uh, I think it's a terrible, terrible thing. But thanks for asking, Marty. Nice to hear from you. George in Garden City, Kansas. Hey, George, what's up? Can you tell me uh, what's behind the reasoning of Cuba being put or listed again as a terror-sponsoring nation? It's another shout-out to right-wing Hispanics in Florida. Okay. I just caught a little bit of it on the TV, and and I didn't get it, and and I thought, well, Tom will know. Yeah, and it's also, you know, they think that they're owning the libs or something. I, You know, it's it, they're also, you know, selling off lands, Native American lands. There's a sacred Native American land that the San Carlos Apache tribe has been using for years and years. To, uh, former Chief Nosey was interviewed about this. And they're selling off oil drilling rights. I mean, it's it's like, you know, they're as they're leaving the house, they're stealing everything they can. That's what's going on. And, in fact, there's even reports, I've seen reports in the media, that... Some of the people who work in the White House may be walking out of the White House with 100 and 200 year old artifacts. Now that's unsubstantiated right now, unconfirmed, but I'm willing to, well, we need to look into it. You know, we need to look into it. Because if so, that would be a disaster. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. But when you've got a grifter and a thief and a liar in the White House, Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes 
into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. On the Science Revolution this week, we have Dr. Justin Frank, MD. He's here on the psychology of authoritarianism. We'll be taking a deep dive into the mind of authoritarianism, where and how the authoritarian mind begins. And Dr. Frank ties the mind of the authoritarian followers to Donald Trump and the whole mess there. Plus, the vaccine effort has failed. Can it be fixed or should we just do the one-shot approach? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. There is a lot in the news. Uh, first, I wanted to share with you what our, you know, anybody listening to talk radio who might be dialing across the radio dial and tuning into right-wing talk radio is going to be hearing today. Just so you know, right? You know, uh, our friends over at The Writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, T-H-E, thewriting.com, um, every day monitor all these right-wing websites and publish an, a daily report. And I got mine this morning. Um, and here's what here's what's coming out of Newsmax. Uh, the Democratic reign of terror has begun. See, you thought these guys were like chastened. You know, they were they were going to calm down. They, they, you know, oh, geez, five people dead, six people dead. Now you have a, a police officer committed suicide. Um, you know, uh, maybe we should back off. Maybe we should chill out. No, that's not happening. All right, there's, there were 10 Republicans for whom that happened in the House of Representatives, and that's it. 197 said, hey, insurrection, treason, we're down with that, as long as we can perpetuate the voter fraud lie, which is the op-ed that I published over at TomHartman.Medium.com, is you know the reason why Republicans can't back away from this is because for the last 40 years, much of the reason that Republicans are in political office, particularly at the federal level right now, is because of voter suppression. And the voter suppression that's been done has been done because they've been claiming that there's voter fraud. And there isn't. George W. Bush spent two and a half years and $74 million in all 100 federal prosecutors looking for voter fraud. He found 82 cases. The most comprehensive study was done from 2000 to 2014, during that period of time, by... As I recall, it was Loyola University. It's, there's a link to it in the article that I published for it, uh, TomHartman.Medium.com. And they found 31 cases nationwide out of a billion votes. And almost all of these, by the way, when they do find so-called voter fraud, almost always, 90% of the time, it's somebody who got out of jail for a felony conviction and registered to vote and voted, thinking that they could vote, not knowing that they live in one of the dozen or so states that say if you've ever been convicted of a felony, you can never again vote, which goes back to, G to Jim Crow. I mean, that was one of the instruments to disenfranchise black people, criminalize everything like loitering and stuff like that, and then make the law that if you've ever been convicted of a crime, you can't vote. So that's going on. So anyhow, uh, back to what the right-wingers are saying today. This is in the writing. The democratic reign of terror has begun. It is endangering our free speech, our free press, our political playing field, and personal liberty. Watch your back. The Democrats are using the outrageous and unsupportable Capitol riot. So let's just distance ourselves from the riot, right? The same way that the Reichstag fire in 1933 was used as a pretext for an authoritarian crackdown. Yeah, the FBI going after right-wingers who are conspiring to kidnap and kill American politicians is a reign of terror, an authoritarian crackdown. This from American Greatness. Democrats cling desperately to Trump hatred. The Democrats are not going to be able to hide much longer behind their Trump hatred, but it's really all they've got. Yeah, right. Front page. The Capitol riot, Hill riot, was Pelosi's fault, not Trump's. 
The Capitol riot is Pelosi's disaster, and she's making the most of it by blaming it on everyone else. Her private police force had the resources and the people to keep out the Visigoths, never mind a few hundred people, and instead turned out what should have been a riot into a disaster. Right. Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Quote, Last week's deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol was not an act of racism, nor was it an insurrection. It was not an armed invasion by a brigade of dangerous white supremacists. Those are lies. What happened last week is being used to justify the most sweeping crackdown on civil liberties and free speech in the history of this country, says Tucker Carlson. The American Thinker published this piece. The headline, Multiple Leftists Arrested for Capitol Riot. Have you seen one, by the way? With arrest after arrest of assorted leftists emerging, it looks like impeachment-happy Nancy Pelosi has a lot of egg on her face. And it goes on from there. But that's where they're at. And the essential bottom line here is this is why, this is the result of coddling right-wing terrorists for 30 years. And, you know, Josh Marshall wrote a great piece on the 15th over at uh, TalkingPointsMemo.com, and, and he just lays this out. You know, remember when, when Obama first came into office? A year earlier, the FBI had re released a report about left-wing, the threat of left-wing terrorism. And then the first couple of months of the Obama administration, they issued their report about right-wing terrorism. And Rush Limbaugh and the whole right-wing sphere went insane. And so Obama pulled back the report. And the FBI in 2009 had warned of exactly what we're seeing right now. So anyway, I'll, I'll be picking up your phone calls right after the break. It's Talk Media for the Sane Among Us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016. This is from Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, by 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of thirty to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem, end of quote. And that was thirty to forty thousand dollars in nineteen sixty-six dollars, which would roughly be one hundred and ninety-nine thousand to two hundred sixty thousand dollars in twenty ten dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the nineteen sixties. This was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons, and everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked, or more pay, or both, for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and, and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And, of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened, and it didn't happen, because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work, taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever 
Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market, coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the leisure society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity can continue to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, But wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400 percent since 1950, Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less or just 10 hours a week to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. Jeff in San Francisco. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Um, I'm just thinking, you know, you and I both grew up with the Jetsons, you know, and it's pretty much showing that, I mean, as productivity goes with technology, our wages are supposed to go up and we do less work. And the perfect example is my uncle was a truck driver from the 40s, and he said he was talking about before they had power steering. You didn't make less money once they got power steering. You made more. And it's just like what's, when you're going to have driverless trucks. My suggestion is we bring all these guys back from Afghanistan, give them a driverless, you know, give them those electric trucks that uh, Elon Musk is developing, low interest mm-hmm. rates, and they could uh, make money that way. We need a Green New Deal to start with something like that. If we could hit it with the veterans, uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, they you're still going to need people behind the wheel. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, Jeff, and I don't, you know, the whole driverless truck thing, it gives me the creeps, you know, to know that that I, I, uh, I know, you know, 30 but, tons but, of steel going down it, the road doesn't have a human being. Go ahead. But you still have a human being behind it. I mean, or... Or at least just why don't we just bring them back and give them one of the, those new? They have these electric uh, semi trucks, you know. They're, I've, yeah. I'm sure you've seen. Well, those. you know, modern aircraft, modern jet planes are capable of flying themselves literally from takeoff to landing, and frequently do. But we still have two pilots in the cockpit. I mean, I, I just, yeah, exactly. I, I don't see drivers going away. I, I you know, if, if that's what you're saying, I, I agree with you, Jeff. I got to run, but thanks for the call. Uh, it is an interesting topic. Hey, 
Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together. And it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, afternoon, Tom. And I want to mention the, uh, the matter that you've been drumming away on pretty good, you know, over the last week or so on what had been the procedural strategy in Trump's mind as they sat there and, mm-hmm. and watched uh, the events of, of January 6th unfold, that they were, you know, going to have, you know, Pelosi disappear in tents and it was going to fall to Grassley and he was going to throw it to the House and one vote per state, blah, 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 all that stuff. Isn't it amazing how they love a procedure of constitutional design when it suits their coup? But let's not forget they had to bulldoze a ton of constitutional procedure to get there. So in yeah. the in the sour grapes yeah, well wake said. that yeah, well they keep everyone everyone claims the Constitution and there's so many misinterpretations. I mean just look at the social media thing. Oh, First Amendment, First Amendment. And all I can say to those people, are you kidding me? You're begging for socialist control of private companies and you don't even realize it. So the this yeah. use of the Constitution is a bludgeon by them. It really befits true patriots, and you really can't be a true American patriot without being semi-liberal, because our system of government just is set up that way. But you got to remind these people where they are betraying the Constitution, chapter and verse. Yeah, amen. Very, very well said, Eric, and totally agree. Richard in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Richard, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call, as always. I wanted to go ahead and let you know that I've actually completely reconsidered my uh, travel plans for Mr. Trump because I had mentioned on uh, previous call that he might be going to Russia, but that's not going to happen. After I thought it over, I realized that Vladimir Putin's much too smart for that. He'd much rather leave him here and create chaos as well as try to go ahead and squeeze every uh, detail of security and knowledge about the American system and uh, underbelly that he can. He's not going to go to Russia. He'll never get to Russia. You may be right. I mean, a lot's going to depend on what kind of imminent legal jeopardy he feels. But I've been saying for a year now, Donald Trump is a flight risk. I mean, it may not be Russia. You know, there's there's other countries that he might want to go to. On the other hand, if it turns out that there's not a bank in the world that'll loan him money, and he's going to have to start selling his properties at fire sales. The, the real estate agency that was selling his hotel in Washington, D.C. just uh, dumped him. So and he's trying to get 500 million bucks for the hotel in D.C. and nobody's buying it. I mean, if it turns well, out that Donald Trump, you know, a month or so from now is just flat broke and his family is flat broke outside of the money that they've grifted and stolen and stashed away in overseas bank accounts, there may not be any countries that want him. I mean, if he was a real billionaire, they might want him, but he's a phony billionaire. He's, he's, a billion, he's over a billion dollars in debt. He's got a negative net worth, as far as I can tell. Mar-a-Lago is going to be actually a prison for him is what's going to happen. He's not going to be able, he's going to declare it a national haven for, for himself, you know, off limits, et cetera. And he, it's going to be actually a prison for him. He won't be able it, it to go really anywhere. And he's declared it his residency, by the way. So under Florida law, if he declares bankruptcy on absolutely everything, they can't take Mar-a-Lago away from him because that's his official residence. The citizens that's of Palm right. Beach, though, are saying, hey, wait a minute. We don't, you know, you can't have a residence in a business. And Those so Trump, you've got to. Right. Yeah, oh, they're, they're really struggling. Anyway, I got to run. Uh, Richard, thank you for the call. James in Seattle. Hey, James, what's up? Hi, I'm a little bit worried about Putin uh, taking out an electrical grid, but I called about Republican nannyism. Their belief mm-hmm. that if somebody gets $600 a week, that all they'll do is go to the uh, the beach and drink beer. 
Well, that's, you know, it's like any lie that they, they use. It's like a voter fraud. It doesn't exist. We're yeah. a herd animal, and in a herd society, status is the number one consideration of people. And so everybody, I mean, 100% of the people will tell you that they're the top 10%. So they're kind of delusional about their judgment about that. And that's exactly what the police say that they're so good at is uh, situational awareness of other people's performance of their personal responsibilities. And yeah. this is it's, like, this, it's the old saying, you know, Republican on. voters are, are thinking that they are temporarily distressed billionaires. I mean, you know, that's where it's at. James, thank you for the call here on the Tom Hartman program, the true people's media. Stick around. Hi, Tom Hartman here. In my new book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, I'll be taking you from the birth of America as a revolt against monopoly, remember the Boston Tea Party, to the largely successful efforts of both Presidents Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt and other like-minded leaders to constrain corporations' monopolistic urges, to the massive changes in the rules of business starting during the Reagan Revolution that have brought us into the cancer stage of capitalism. In the foreword by Ralph Nader, he says, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation, end quote. It's the fourth in my Hidden History series. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy starts with you. Tag, you're it. And uh, Ken in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for taking my phone call. Uh, first off, you're mispronouncing the party of the confidence men and con artists. Uh, it's Republican. They changed the A to an O about the time that Reagan ran for governor, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah I think so. I want to know if you think that we will be expecting Nancy Pelosi to give a couple of skunk eyes and a scornful uh, finger waggle and then come across and say, we're going to put all of this behind us, reach across the aisle to our Republican uh, members so we can get on doing the business of the people's business. Do you think she'll hold any of them accountable? I, I really don't think she's going to do that. And, you know, there was a, uh, a tweet in, in one tweet. This is uh, I saw this over on DU, but the, the tweet is from um, from Munson underscore Joe. Anyhow, says, Pelosi said her young staffers knew to barricade the door, turn out the lights and be silent because they learned it in school in active shooter drills. So, I mean, oh, this is yeah. this is what. Yeah, isn't that insane? I mean, that's that, this is what our our culture of having you know 400 million guns in a country of 300 million people. This is what it has come to, and uh, it's just it's just mind boggling. Ken, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's it's great to hear. Always great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's up? So, Tom, we only have a cup a few more days to go till a 300 pound malignant tumor is removed from our body politic. And, you know, as with most <laughs> cancers, we're going to need radiation and chemo treatments that start with the impeachment and holding all those accountable in the failed coup attempt, but also investigations to all the other crimes of this worst presidency ever. But looking forward, Tom, uh, our recovery process is going to be dependent on keeping the pressure on on President Biden to implement the an FDR-sized progressive agenda. And along with that, what do you think about, once again, mandating civics as part of uh, any high school's curriculum, and including in that a history of African-American slavery and the genocide of Native Americans? Besides giving a factual education on the foundings of this country, we might just be able to instill a little more empathy and cut it away at the racism at the heart of white America. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, well said. I'm totally down with the entire agenda, Jeff. I mean, first, we have to get our public schools funded again. And that's why Joe Biden's asking for billions of dollars in this first piece of legislation to make that happen. But yeah, totally with you, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Good show. I believe this was an inside job. 
And the main reason I believe it I do too. is because the president was not taken to a bunker during the violent insurrection. Because if you recall, even during the protests in Lafayette Park, I believe it was in June, he was taken to a bunker that day. So I believe they knew mm-hmm. that he was safe, and I think that's a very important piece of information that, that leans toward it being an inside job. Plus, I think he had help think from Mo right, Brooks and Paul Kozar and a few others, and I think they should all be held accountable, every single one of them. They should have the books yeah, thrown I at don't. them all. Yeah, I don't think after this, uh, this severe a trauma, Nancy Pelosi is going to let these guys get away with it. Carol, thank you for the call. Arnie in Palm Springs. Hey, Arnie, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, Tom. Happy New Year. I have been getting uh, text messages and um, emails from an organization called Act Blue, which uh, I've been donating to. And one of the things that they keep saying that uh, they will have my donations match 350 to 400 percent. And I'm questioning that now. I mean, they never don't never say who their donors are or if that's really true. Do you have any information about that? To the best of my knowledge, Arnie, Act Blue is the is basically a bank. It's a process. They process donations for Democratic politicians and they don't ask for money themselves and they don't mail out things themselves. So you may be getting emails from somebody who's pretending to be Act Blue or somebody who is uh, you know, trying to commit some kind of fraud on you or perpetrate a fraud on you. But I, I would be very surprised, particularly if they're you know, just blindly asking for donations. Thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 